giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with us today is Andrew Steele, Olympic medalist and head of product at DNA Fit. Andrew, thanks for joining me. And a pleasure. Thanks very much, Chad. Looking forward to it. So I know you joined DNA Fit in 2013, and the product is really interesting and exciting. And so I'd love for you to tell the audience more about DNA Fit. What exactly is it? Sure, yeah. So um, audience may be familiar with like the concept of direct consumer or at-home DNA testing. And often that's been associated historically with either serious like medical conditions, mm-hmm. like looking at risk of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, etc., or uh, the main consumer use has really been on ancestral heritage. So companies like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, et cetera, lead the market there. What we created with DNA Fit was the first really readily available sort of um, commercialized use of a home DNA test, but specifically looking at the genetic factors behind our response to exercise, response to nutrition, or response to other well-being factors. So basically trying to give people a little bit more information about themselves, discovering their genetic profile and how that might affect the way they live their lifestyle from a sort of wellness perspective. So personalizing their exercise, personalizing their nutrition or personalizing their stress and sleep management. And that's been used kind of, I guess, you know, from everyday people that are just trying to start working out or want to lose some weight all the way up to professional sports people and governing bodies as well. One of the reasons why DNA Fit resonated with me and I got interested and excited about it when I started learning about it is I haven't done 23andMe, but like, not that it's a dead end product, like, but <laughs> it's possible to do 23andMe and then just do nothing with the information. But the yeah. idea of taking that same basic DNA test and building a bigger useful experience around it that can genuinely change people's lives for the better that seems so much more exciting to me yes i look at both both ends of the spectrum have value but i think the way we look at ourselves we're not really even a genetics company we're like a lifestyle and health company and that that's the way we see ourselves so actually understanding that genetic profile and how it might affect what you do is the first stage but really the product itself is only one part of that is actually that that data report that here's your report for your results and that's that's the key part is actually moving past that so you know everybody's always been able to go to their doctor get a lab test of some description in whether it's bloods dna whatever it is and then you're given this like black and white microsoft word document that says loads of numbers and then you don't know what to do with it so what we do is actually try to create an actionable utility to that data as opposed to just give you data for data's sake and that that's the fundamental difference and it also is partly informed by kind of business models as well and as we know so 23andme have a a bit of a sometimes controversial business model mm-hmm. in the in the use of that data and aggregating that which i personally have no problem with but um, it's just very much not what we do and w- what we're doing is giving people actionable exercise or nutrition and therefore the lab data just facilitates that as opposed to is the core product itself and as a part of the sort of standard package i understand you get access and a consultation with an expert yeah so i mean i took you through a journey really quickly so like um user so it goes either comes across us somehow so they might buy online through our website they might 
actually upload their 23andMe data or ancestry DNA data. So you can, you can use existing genetic data to create the product. Or depending on where you are in the world, you might even buy it through your local gym or in, in a local health store, etc. So we actually have a physical presence as well. You can actually buy the kit. So the kit's a swab kit, a saliva kit. People might be pretty familiar with that sort of way of giving a saliva sample for a DNA test. Then once the results are ready, which takes us around 10 days when we receive them, they get an online portal, which is giving them, obviously, their access to their reports. So their reports are through a sort of an interactive desktop UI, a mobile UI, also an app. There's also PDF reports, which kind of seems like old school, but people still really love to download a PDF. <laughs> and that's just somehow human nature. You know, we've not moved past that yet. And then uh, the crucial next stages, and this is, this is what, I guess, differentiates us, is that we have a whole team, a big, big team of dietitians, sports scientists, and health coaches. And so every single user gets the option to actually book a consultation with these guys to talk through their reports and actually more than one consultation. So they can basically put the data in context for who they are and they effectively gain access to an expert who they'd have to pay a lot of money to go and see just even without personalized data. And so from that, then we're able to then give them follow on services. And we pioneered the world's first ever genetically guided exercise platform we have like a genetically guided meal planning platform and a few other services from there, even including like a personalized supplementation, which will come soon. So basically just like trying to start this journey and the psychology behind it is there's kind of, there's three kinds of stages to understanding. And the first one is you can, you can hopefully get the education from your report and understand it in your own context and make your own educated decisions. The second is you can hopefully have an expert help you with that understanding and guide you through that. And the third is almost like a prescribed education. So you can go, hey, we're going to tell you exactly what exercise to do and exactly which meals to eat. We can close the loop that way to say, well, whether you just want to know so you can make your own decisions, whether you just want some help with those decisions, or whether you want us to just make the decisions for you, the kind of product serves every part of that like mental approach. Very cool. So you joined DNA Fit in 2013. At what stage was the business and what stage was the product in when you joined? Uh, so super early. I'm somewhere around employee number one or two, some, mm-hmm. something along those lines. So, so it's so early, we weren't even clear on if people were, <laughs> we were employed or not. Right? So that, that's how early it was when I joined. So a little bit of context, which is relevant, I, I think, here is how I came to that. So I spent most of my adult life as an Olympic athlete. I was an Olympic track and field athlete. I used to run the 400 meters for Great Britain. And I did that for eight years old uh, through to... 32 I think I was when I retired competitively and I joined DNA Fit at a crucial time in my career when things had gone kind of badly for me and I was sort of scratching around trying to find some answers and I was doing a lot of laboratory tests at the time speaking to a lot of sports physiologists and just serendipitously I received a swab in a bag in the post and I was actually in Arizona at the time on a training camp and uh, somehow this guy who was starting up this business was looking for sports people to feed back on this. And he found me and somehow found a way to get a swab to me and actually took the test. And it spoke very personally to some of my experience in my career. And I just sort of saw potential for it, at least in my world, which was elite sports people. Right. And so we, and I, I sent a message just saying, by the way, 
this is my experience. This is what the test told me. Well done. <laughs> like you, you, you're onto something here. And actually, from then, uh, we, we kept in touch. And over the next few months, once I was back in the UK, we met up. And actually, from, from there, we sort of started to you know, work really well together and it sort of formalized the relationship. So the, the company existed before me, uh, absolutely, but it was still very early days. Our product at the time was just a very um, rudimentary single PDF report, just like a normal lab report. So the, the transformation from laboratory report to kind of user experience, um, I've, I've been lucky enough to help guide and strategize. I'm curious, was that always the plan or did that emerge Listen, I had no background in tech or in any job, actually, any work, because mm-hmm. I was a runner. So it really wasn't the plan. You know, I just found that actually, you know, I had a passion for yeah. this and learned pretty quickly. And we just had some cool opportunities. So the truth is, you know, track and field athlete, you're not making basketball money or you're not making soccer money, right? <laughs> so you, you have to be open to experience if right. you're going to earn a living. And, and thankfully I was. <laughs> so yeah, it became, right. it very quickly became a job that was quite all encompassing. And I was still training at the time. I was still competing, trying to make it to the Rio Olympic Games in 2016. And so it was a pretty hard couple of years where I was trying to do both. But the truth is eventually this kind of started to overtake in the priority as my athletic career went downhill right. <laughs> so, so it was a nice dovetail out of sport into into real life but thankfully it's a real life which uh, it has a lot of passion for me as well you know yeah so in the same way that your career evolved organically and you ended up at dna fit products often tend to evolve organically so same question like when you joined dna fit it was a swab and a and a report was the plan always that there would be more, there would be consultation and that this would be a portal? And was that all the plan or did that emerge as you started to build out the product and reach more customers? Everything, everything just always emerged, right? Mm-hmm. So especially coming from, listen, I went no, through no formal qualifications, especially on the, you know, the product side. I'd never been taught what a roadmap was, what a wireframe was or anything along those lines. So actually everything just happened in the way it had to happen for the business to grow. So effectively, you know, I had a passion which was, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could give people a, a training plan based on their goal plus their genetic data? And then, yeah, so we were trying to figure out this model of how we could do that. And then it became clear there was a lot of other complexities as you need to figure out how often they're available to do exercise. You know, how different are their goals compared to the next person? Are they absolute beginners? Are they intermediate? Are they advanced? And so there became all these variables. So we very quickly had to come up with a with a system to sort of write these rules. And so the necessity of that kind of end goal, which was give someone a genetically guided training plan with the start point, which was we have their DNA data, all those steps in the middle had to almost be sort of, we had to work backwards and, and get those in somehow. And, and that's that's an interesting way of looking at things because often in, I guess, you know, in, in life, we set what we'd call a result goal as in, you know, hey, I want to earn this amount of money or I want to be this job title or I want to achieve any sort of goal. I want to lose this amount of weight or whatever it is. But in sport, that goal is often already defined for us. Like, you know, it's win the gold medal or it's win the biggest thing in my field, right? So in your, mm-hmm. your particular discipline. So actually what matters to you as a sports person is your process goals. Like what are the steps that we have to reach in order to get there? And so thankfully, actually, that sort of mentality I found really useful in product building is to say, well, 
you know, the end goal, oh, this is to be super cool, right? So <laughs> and loads of people use it. So then actually you have to just use these process goals rather as the bigger guide rather than just right. the end goal. Because the end goal is so big and intangible and so hard to reach that you just need to work on these process goals. So, so it's funny how, you know, sport actually has some, some relevance in how you would plan to perform in sport into product building, which is uh, not what I expected if someone would have asked me six years ago. Yeah, I like that. And so many people when we talk about it, they try to use metaphors that don't really apply to product creation, like building a house or a building. You know, people yeah, try to yeah. relate construction to that, but it's not really relevant because the times where you can have a blueprint and that tells you everything to do and exactly how everything's going to fit together, that doesn't really apply to product creation. Yeah, you know, I think that sometimes it applies if you're in a huge organization yeah. and you've got a very narrow remit, you guys are trying to improve the search function or something like that. Right. And then you can apply these kind of useful frameworks to say, okay, first we need to do this. We're going to speak to some users. We're going to get that feedback. We're going to do a lo-fi wireframe we're gonna yeah, and so on but then if you're trying to really make something new you kind of just have to go what do we think is cool uh, that would be cool and then you have to figure out those process goals so it's like trying to ask someone to build a house but you don't really know what the end design of the house would look like so you, right. you have no idea it might be upside down it might, right. so you just have to be super agile yeah. and really not um don't take yourself so seriously that you you have to follow a, a set rule. Like sometimes you just have to just, I don't know, you just build the thing and then it, it could be terrible. But, yeah. You know, like too late, you know? So, yeah. so you, you, just have to, you just have to go, you know? And, and to be honest, as a business, you know, we always had to do that as a result of we didn't raise any VC capital. We were just completely bootstrapped. So we never had the luxury of, okay, okay we're going to launch something in six months and we actually have the resource to fund those six months. We just had to get something out no matter what it was, and try to make noise about it. And, and thankfully, I think that actually benefited us in the long term, uh, that mentality. But mm -hmm. it's a, it was a hard path to run at the time. Yeah. When it comes to the product creation and that organic nature of it and, and the process goals, which I, I really love, were there product ideas or business ideas that, you know, that were missteps that you had to course correct on? Yeah, so um, the funny thing is we really thought the potential for this product was – in the hands of physical trainers, dietitians, nutritionists, and, uh, yeah. and through gyms. And actually, and look, listen, that's a big segment of our business, right? That, that's not truly a misstep, but we really didn't think there was going to be an appetite for people that were direct consumers because mm -hmm. we were like, well, how does the everyday person even know or care about, they don't even know that DNA plays a role in this. Like we're going to have to do so much education, et cetera. But the amazing thing was, I think there was a confluence of two trends that really was a lucky timing too. First one was that it became socially cool to show off about being healthy. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, if you go back into the 90s, you would not find a 22-year-old bragging about how many times they'd been to the gym that week. Right. They would brag about how many times they got really drunk that week. Right? <laughs> so, and now, you know, the only thing people show off about, young people show off about is that, hey, look how healthy I am. I'm eating healthily. I'm working out this often. I'm getting eight hours sleep. It's kind of like this new trend. And that, that was great. And that's a very positive thing for society. And at the same time, people started caring about kind of quantified data, even the everyday consumers, which I found so funny and so weird that actually, you know, you could be, a beginner and you will measure how many steps you did and wear your gps monitor 
And that's like insane because previously you would say, well, that's, that's unimportant at your stage. Just start doing some exercise. It right. doesn't matter how many steps you did. But people needed the data to engage themselves in a new habit. So this, this combination of those two things of like data-led like self-care, if you will, and then the fact that it was cool to be healthy meant that actually we suddenly started getting these inquiries from direct consumers saying, hey, can I buy one? And we hadn't even allowed for that in the product. Like we didn't know how to deliver it direct to a consumer. It was all through like a, you know, a sort of dashboard portal mm-hmm. for a professional. And so suddenly we had to like rejig everything and change all the wording, all the content, the way we sh- we showed everything, because then it had to be understandable by a layperson, not by an expert who'd been through an education course. And I'm a big fan. I, I much prefer the notion of reaching everybody directly. And I think yeah. that's where the real power comes how big was the demand there? Because, you know, I think one thing people often struggle with is you hear something from one person or two people and you, and as a founder or a product person responsible, you're like, you start overreacting to that. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the threshold where you said, no, clearly this demand is here that you started mm. to change your product? Well, if we're being truly honest, it was just that one person wanted to pay us. So, yeah. but, okay, <laughs> maybe some, maybe a second person want to pay for the kit, and, mm-hmm. and so on, because we, yeah, we were unfunded, right? So we didn't really assess that. Nowadays, we would. So, yeah. and the truth is, the interesting sort of human behavioral habit that happens is if you get one complaint from somebody, you tend to overreact more than if you get one compliment on something. Yeah. So you know, somebody complains that, hey, I don't like this section of the report or this section of the app then you're like, oh my God, we need to fix that. That's terrible. But actually, if someone goes, hey, it's really cool, you don't go, all right, well, we'll double down on that. You know, right. so the difference there in what I've noticed as we built features now is to make sure that you don't necessarily just completely overreact to a small number of negative things. But at the same time, you also apply the same weighting to sort of positive feedback and say, well, if they did like that, if these two people did like that, the chances are we can probably make more people like it as well. So what we did at the time was just pure necessity. Someone wanted to pay us some money to buy a kit. Great. Let's let someone else pay us money. And actually that just kept going. So that was where the, that was, it was very clear from that point. Yeah. So you mentioned that you still have customers who are in that first segment that you were targeting, the coaches mm. and the physicians and that kind of thing. Yeah. How do you balance the needs of those two different customer bases? In the end result, like the actual product itself, it was still going to be presented to the same end user. So mm-hmm. it's just sort of the way of delivering that. So actually, we we kind of maintain two parallel sort of systems. So a system for you know professionals to first unlock an education course. So we built um, an accredited CPD education course on genetics in fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle. So we then have like 20 hours of modules, online e-learning management system that we built to allow professionals to come in, gain the education needed, even submit coursework that gets marked by our team. Then they get a certification. And then from there, they're able to unlock the ability to like buy in almost bulk, you know, at trade prices, and then to provide ordering portals to their clients so they could say, hey, you know, you go here, you can get your test here at this price through me. So it's almost becomes like they have a separate way of of sort of creating that transaction. And there's a few extra features available to those guys too, which we feel would be sort of harder to describe if you were just an end user. But actually, if you're getting that through a guy who knows you or through an expert that's familiar with your dietary habits, for example, they can communicate that information in in a more appropriate way. So it's just subtle 
subtle changes in the ordering process, subtle changes in the sort of product experience process. But the, fundamentally, it's the same technology and the same core reporting, more or less. So at this point, you, know, you joined and you were maybe employee one or two. Now it's six years on. Mm. And I think I see on the website, you've sold over 50,000 of the original kits. You've expanded into new product lines. So how has the team changed? How has the company changed? What, what size is it now? In the group globally, we're somewhere around 170 or so in the mm-hmm. team. So it's been pretty good. We were acquired about 18 months ago. We joined the Prenetics group, who are Alibaba-backed company out of Hong Kong. So we're, we're sort of part of a big global picture now as well. But the key difference for us as we grew was actually we also have a, a very large office in South Africa, uh, Johannesburg. So Avi, our CEO, is um, South African. And so we had some good infrastructure and connections there. And actually, it's been really good because we have some great skilled resources there, especially on like dietitians and sports scientists. They're on the same time zone as, as of course, as Europe, which is still mm-hmm. where the majority of our customers are. And so we, we've been able to really grow the team. Uh, while working across a number of different sites, and that was a that was a you know a challenge to adjust to at first in terms of like we didn't have Slack or we didn't have any sort of remote working like ability to communicate with each other at all. So we just that we just had to be you know nimble and, and agile on our feet and, and and get used to new ways of working. And now we've grown, of course, we're able to I guess put in a few more processes, put in a few more I guess frameworks of how we should we should do things the most efficient way but still trying to, and my biggest fear is getting eaten up into kind of like policy or protocol-led mm-hmm. processes that, that come along with a big company yeah. uh, to just let people be completely in control of what they do and not micromanaged and just hopefully create stuff that's really right. good. So you have the website and the app and sort of the platform. You mentioned the LMS. Have you built a design and development team internally? Yes, so we have. Yeah, so we actually have a few different ways. So we have some external devs, some mm-hmm. internal. Uh, all our design is internal, mostly in house, really. You know, across a few different locations. Uh, so we do that, and we've built a lot of different systems. You know, and, and sometimes we've started external because we, yeah, we were mm-hmm. too small, right? So we we've actually just you know used an external vendor for a certain part of our experience, and then eventually brought that in house to serve our purposes. So you said at the beginning that this was a completely different career for you. You hadn't had the industry experience. Now you're head of product at a tech company that's delivering and building and designing digital products. What's been the biggest surprise to you that you know that you just didn't know or expect from the product creation and engineering side of things? Yes, yeah, interesting. Uh, that's a good question. At one point, I actually... I tried to retrofit my experience by doing a product management course uh, last year. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I at least knew the official jargon that, like, <laughs> or terminology. that I saw. And amazingly, actually, I think the biggest surprise was most of what we'd start, the processes, the way we worked, that we'd done organically without me knowing anything about the best way to do this stuff, actually matched. I just didn't necessarily call a lo-fi wireframe, a lo-fi wireframe. Right. Or I think the way to realize is yeah, most of what we consider like good theoretical practice or th- theoretical protocols have been built based off somebody's experience once and, and yeah. they've been based off best practice. So I think my surprise was how well we'd done stuff once I actually learned <laughs> in yeah. inverted commas the correct way to do stuff. So that, that, was, that was probably the biggest surprise for me that although I just went in head first, had no experience, just was super scrappy the whole six years, 
when I actually learned from the ground up in a textbook type manner, we weren't a million miles away from the textbook yeah. approach, which is, that's a good testament to the the fact that in tech, you know, we aren't encumbered by a hundred years of actually this is how this language should be taught or how math should be taught. Mm-hmm. Essentially, we kind of, it's been built off a nimble, agile framework already. So that's a good, a good thing, I guess. And, you know, I'm also a big believer in the idea that one simple is always better, but like if you start to over think it, you're probably on the wrong path. Like most ways to build a product or to figure out what a product should be and to manage a product development life cycle. If you just do what seems like the common sense thing to do, <laughs> that's probably yeah. better <laughs> than overcomplicating it and adding a lot of process and yeah. th- those kinds of things. Well, see, my interesting thought there is, that, and I think a lot of the processes that people say you should do before launching a product, like really super extensive user feedback, you know, even watching people the way that, if you feel that you need to make those necessary before even getting something out. I think a lot of that exists for self-protection if then mm-hmm. something does go wrong so you're not getting blamed for it, right? You know, so it's like um, <laughs> if you're in a big corporate that has a, a product team, right, and they're saying, hey, build us an app. And then you you just build an app based off what you think is good common sense. And then there's something you missed because you will, you're human. Then in a big corporate, there's kind of this accountability culture where it's like, hey, it's your fault. Why didn't you test this? Whereas if you're in a, a team with, that you all trust in each other and you believe in each other and you know everyone's just doing the absolute best they can for the product, then if you get something out and it was it was terrible, then like so be it, right? You know, it was just that was the best guess at the time, <laughs> and, then, right. and now we move on. So it's almost like this um, blame culture that that might come in a bigger company which necessitates people or makes people feel it's necessary to do all those really exhaustive steps before even getting something out. But like you said, if you can just do it based off your common sense approach in a positive working environment, then I think that only provides you with more power later on. So you're not like weighed down by all the the processes that you can before launching something. I think that's a really good point. And yet there are things that you can do in a lightweight way, like, because we also don't like waste, right? As, as lean, mm. agile people, like we'll often put a quick lo-fi sketch together of something and then run it by three to five customers in a very sort of informal way. You know, we're not doing it uh, yeah. hundreds, you know, extensive months long testing. It's just take a day, take a few hours, <laughs> run what you're doing by somebody external to make sure that you're validating your overall direction before you go and spend, you know, weeks of development or design time refining something. And we try yeah, so to like a nice strike balance. a balance yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a balance between perfectionism and terrible research. Right. right. So hopefully you make somewhere nicely in the middle. It's like, if we try to be perfectionists, we'll never get anything out. If we don't ask anybody what they think about this, we could be completely wrong. So good halfway house between the two. So you're in the US, Canada, Australia, and UK now, right? So we're part of the group called Prenetics Group Mm -hmm. uh, now, and we are the international arm of that business, which is effectively everything outside of uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia. But so as DNA Fit is a product, we've got our headquarters here in London. Our other big site is in Joburg in South Africa. 
we actually don't have a on the ground presence um, in terms of an office or anything in, in the US and Canada, but we of course have a lot of customers that come to us and buy the product from North America. Um, so it's a it's a you right. know, it's a fairly large user base, but we're not physically there uh, like on the ground. Yeah, I, I did mean from a user base perspective because mm. on the website you choose a country and yes, you choose one exactly, of those yeah, four. Yeah. So are there limits to the product you can offer? in various things like South Africa is not on this list, for example. So can you have users in South Africa, even though you have a team there? So the, around the world, like direct consumer genomic testing has different regulatory environments. Right. So for example, in France, the end user is not even allowed to get it. Even the, the accountability falls on the end user. So like you're not allowed to access a direct consumer genetic test in France currently, if you're a person. Mm-hmm. So it's not even about the companies, it's about actually the end user. But in most of the world, in what we do at DNA Fit, it's considered under the sort of medical regulatory environment because it's kind of wellness advice, fitness, nutrition, right. and, and so sort of stress and sleep management. So we're pretty open. We do uh, sort of localize the products in some ways. So of course, even like the spelling of, of certain traits or, and so on will be different in, in the US versus the UK. We actually have the product in 22 different languages. So we've got distribution in tons of different countries around the world as well and we can serve the product in that so thankfully when we first started building out our platform we actually thought about potential for other languages or other localizations so we didn't have to retrofit a scalable engine for that thankfully Mm -hmm. which has been great (laughs) and then the other big part of our business is we actually service white label solutions as well to people that want a similar type of uh, genomics product to us Uh so for example here in the uk as a big health assessment business so with health clinics that we actually make a white label product for here so we actually use the same technology infrastructure but we're able to white label and modular sort of turn on or off certain parts of the product so was that geographic expansion and and hitting more of the world a part of the acquisition that enabled you to do that or was that already underway before no, we we were already there, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it's funny what you do when you just need revenue, right? So you know, <laughs> like I found myself in Egypt lecturing to the Egyptian Olympic Committee on, on genetics at, at a random point. We you know we found ourselves in in all of Latin America, all over the world. So just necessity, we you know any opportunities that came our way, we kind of said yes to everything. So we were already present geographically all over the place. I guess one of the key things we did that allowed us our expansion in North America was we didn't just force users to do our own swab kit. We could use genetic data from 23andMe users or from AncestryDNA users. And that, of course, creates a whole new audience that say, hey, yeah, I want the next step in my data. Like, what what can I use this data for? And then we're like, hey, here you go. Do you want an exercise plan? Do you want a nutrition plan? You don't even need to do a new kit. That was a really important part of the business, actually, to say we've got this whole big audience of potential customers there that have already accustomed to genetics. They just want to know the next step. And so we just come in as that next sort of follow-on service, if you will. Nice. So transitioning a little bit, you mentioned you know you competed in the Beijing Olympics in the 4x400 and some other events as well. Yeah, yeah. So... If anyone listening has ever had the misfortune of running the 400 meters, it's um, that was how I spent my life. So, so it's a it's a sprint event, but it's a very long sprint. So it's a whole lap of the track, and you you basically 
run out of all possible energy sources about three quarters of the way into the race and then you just have to hold on and hang on till the end so i spent a lot of my life doing that and uh did did quite well at the beijing olympic games so i reached the semi-final in the individual event so uh and ran a time of 44 seconds which was an important benchmark in elite 400 meter running and then uh, we actually won a medal in the 4 by 400 meter relay. But we won that medal in a bizarre way. So we came fourth at the time. Mm-hmm. And then two years ago, the Russian team that finished ahead of us were implicated in the doping scandal, which came from the Netflix film Icarus, if you've seen it. Did you ever see that? I haven't that seen it, but I'm yeah. familiar. So it's really cool. And um, I think won an Oscar, actually, best documentary, maybe. Um amazing story of this whistleblower in the Russian anti-doping laboratory. The story behind that documentary is actually what led me to be upgraded <laughs> to become an Olympic medalist. So a very personal desire to, to have everyone watch that documentary. But, so basically, I won an Olympic medal in 2017 for a race I won in 2008. Yeah, it's amazing that nine <laughs> yeah. years later, were you aware of sort of yeah. that a lot? Or <laughs> did you just out of the blue get a call one day and say, congratulations, yeah. you're an Olympic medalist now? No, listen, even at the time, like in the team, everyone uh-huh. around just sort of knew the Russian sort of there was okay. an institutionalized doping problem there. So we kind of knew, but I didn't think it would ever come our way. So they're only allowed to hold the samples for eight years. That's the statute of limitation. So they hold the samples frozen for eight years. So I had like um, a timer, like running down. Right. They could find reason to retest them. And thankfully, that came just in time. So there was rumors in 2015 that the samples had been retested and had surfaced something negative or something positive, should we say, in terms of the laboratory. Right. And then there was all these sort of whispers that were going on for years and years. And then suddenly in 2017, I was in New York just on vacation. I saw a tweet from the IOC just say with a press release. And it just said, yeah, Russians will be disqualified. Great Britain and Northern Ireland in fourth place will be upgraded. And I was like, yes, this is great. I, just, <laughs> I literally just became an Olympic medalist while I was in Central Park. So this is cool. <laughs> so Amazing. yeah, it was a good, uh, good experience. And you know what? I actually prefer getting the medal this way because I think when I was young, I would have been disappointed that I didn't get gold rather than happy that I got bronze, right? <laughs> Whereas now when I failed later to make a, another Olympic Games and to win a medal, I actually appreciate the bronze <laughs> for what it is. <laughs> so I'm curious, at the time you said, you know, it was sort of, we felt like this was the case, that there was doping going mm. on. What you're doing is super hard work. How do you stay motivated in the face of what feels like unfairness? Mm. The main thing that I used to remember was that it doesn't mean you can't win, right? It was just on that occasion, we didn't. And mm-hmm. I'm sure I've won races where there was people that were doping that finished behind me. And I'm sure I've lost races where people that finished ahead of me weren't, weren't doping as well. So mm-hmm. I think it's just always possible. And, and I see that by realizing and knowing from being in the sport that the prevalence of doping actually is really not that widespread. But of course, when it does happen, it's very high profile. So it leads you to think that actually everybody's doing it etc and it's just not it's not even logistically feasible that everybody could be it's just not possible like you are tested so much there's a real taboo around asking for any help in anything Mm -hmm. and so there's just these small pockets and it was just russia we knew was an outlier in terms of it was probably sanctioned from the top down 
historically, if you had like a, an athlete from the US or the UK that got done for doping, it was because they kind of on their own, right. gone outside the system, found some like shady guys in a passageway to help them and, right. and so on. Whereas like with Russia, you just kind of knew like with that team and the environment mm-hmm. and speaking to some of the athletes that it probably wasn't them. It was just the de facto way things worked at that time for them unfortunately but um fortunately for me for the medal eventually not not only (laughs) is it a a fascinating story and amazing that you eventually got the medal but it also resonates for one of the things that we often talk about on this show which is with the founders or product people or anybody it's like how do you view competition do you worry about it Mm. and i think a mistake people can make is focusing on the competition instead of you Mm. and your own business and your own product. And I hear that resonating in what you were saying about the competitive running. It's like each day you need to show up and you need to do your best. And it doesn't matter what the people around you are doing because they don't affect you. Yeah. So I mean, like sport teaches you some great lessons Mm -hmm. and you don't realize at the time before you enter normal life that they taught you those lessons, right? But if I was going into a race and I was just focused on my competitors, I can't stop them running faster than me. I literally would be disqualified if I took my, (laughs) if I tried to stop them running faster than me, right? So the only thing I can do is just try to be as good as I could possibly be in my lane. And hopefully it'll be better than theirs. And that's exactly the same in wider life. And in, in, you know, in tech, like, you can see your competitor doing something cool or something clever and you have to learn from that. You mustn't be blind to it. Right. But at the same time, you can't be just completely led by what they do. Look, and I've been through this myself. I'd, I'd had competitors that I thought, oh, they do that in training, so maybe I should do that. But then if you do that too much, you end up just being like a bad version of them, you know? So, mm-hmm. so you just got to take both ends and you can't ignore one or the other. But at the same time, you really have to remember that you can only be the best product that you can be. You can't stop them being better than you. <laughs> like you literally can't stop them. You can't do some sort of corporate sabotage to make them worse. You just have to continue to try and be better. And that's a, a lesson you learn in sport and actually is so applicable to every role in life. That's awesome. And I think that's a great place to wrap up the conversation. Andrew, (laughs) thank you for joining me so much. No, pleasure. I'm glad uh, that we found some way to link sport with product design. (laughs) Oh, I I wasn't going to stop until we did. So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Good. There's the lesson for everybody. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. If people want to follow along with you or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to do that? So yeah, just reach out to me, um, any of the normal platforms. I'm just Andrew Steele, all one word, A-N-D-R-U-W-S-T-W-E-L-E on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. Reach out to me there. Also, I was going to say, if anyone's of interest, I'll do a discount code for DNA Fit, which is just, we call it Giant Robots. And um, so if anyone wants to use that, head over to dnafit.com and uh, and enter Giant Robots for a a discount there. I'll, I'll get that sorted. Nice. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode, which we can also link the discount to at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.